Second Samuel chapter 15. The title of our message this morning, Be Careful Who You Align Yourself To. It gets difficult um, navigating in this world with all of the authorities that we have in our lives, individuals that we want to show honor and respect, whom the Bible calls us to show honor and respect. Um, even before we get started, I was thinking of this verse on the way up here when I drove up this morning in Romans chapter 13. The Bible says in verse 7, Render therefore to all their due taxes, to whom taxes are due customs, to whom customs fear, to whom fear and honor, to whom honor. Verse 1 in Romans chapter 13 says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. And so we are to show honor and respect to the individuals that we need to, not because they deserve it, not because they're worthy of it, but because God calls us to, he establishes those authorities. But what happens when we have conflicting authorities? What happens when we have authorities that are not in submission to God? What happens when we have somebody who is getting in the way of what God wants to do? And so it it gets difficult because God says, to show honor and respect to individuals, recognizing that these are authorities in our lives. But we're going to see here in this chapter, sometimes it's difficult to navigate through who we're going to do that for. And so just an interesting dynamic. Again, be careful who you align yourself to, and we'll see it as we get into it. Let's pray. Father, we ask your blessing upon this time. Lord, as we go through difficulties... This chapter teaches us, Lord, the perspective, the attitude to have in the midst of what our emotions would want to get the best of us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would learn and be able to navigate through this thing called life as we have examples of individuals that are looking to you, that are surrendered to you in the midst of individuals who are scheming and plotting and conniving. And so, Lord, thank you so much for your word and bless this time. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit says to the church in this morning for your glory. In Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. By way of introduction, David messed up. He committed sin, committed adultery, had the husband of Bathsheba killed by placing them on the front line, covered his tracks by bringing her into the palace and marrying her and doing the right thing. She finds herself pregnant with child. And the prophet Nathan comes to David by God. God sends this prophet to David and shares a story. And the story tugs on David's heart and he's just enraged. He's mad and he says, wow. You know, this thing shouldn't happen. People shouldn't treat people like that. And Nathan takes his finger, points it at David and said, David, you're the man. You did these things. And David confesses his sin and he apologizes. He, he, he is broken before God and he writes Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 during that time. And it's neat to be able to see the heart of David in the midst of, you know, what we only have in the scriptures is an outline, a historical account, but you see the heart of David come through and he's writing this heartfelt thing and he realizes that 
God desires a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. And God's not going to reject that. God won't despise that. And so in the midst of that, God sends Nathan the prophet to David and he communicates, David, this thing that you did was shameful. And what you did in secret, your repercussion's going to be on the outside. People are going to know that discipline is coming to you. The repercussions of what you've done is going to be made known to all. And so we see just things begin to happen. In the very next chapter, you see David's son, Amnon, is in love with his sister, half-sister Tamar, and he ends up raping her, forcing to have sex with her, and it's an unfortunate thing. Absalom, Tamar's full brother, ministers to her as she comes back, and he counsels with her, and just, man, he's, he's just blown away by the whole thing. And two years would go by where Absalom would plot the death of his half-brother Amnon and he would have him killed. He then flees to his grandfather's territory for two years and hides out, three years actually, he would go. And his heart is longing to be with his father, to see his family. And so Joab, David's commander, his general in the army, sees that David is troubled, but David is not doing good things. He's not disciplining his kids. He's not, he's not holding people accountable for these things. Somehow he just doesn't have the means to be able to just size all of this stuff up and know what to do. I don't know if it's through guilt or through just indifference. Whatever it is, David is not stepping up. And so you just see all of this, these dysfunctional dynamics taking place within the home, within the family there. And so finally it gets to the place where Amnon calls for Joab, or I'm sorry, Joab wants to see Absalom come home. And he has a woman go to David and share a story and, you know, it really tugs on David's heart and David says, wow, I'll, I'll defend you, I'll look out for you. And then she turns it around just like Nathan the prophet did with David and she says, David, you're being a hypocrite. You're going to look out for me and my family, but you're not looking out for you and your family. Bring Absalom back home. Let him be back at home. He deserves to be here and and do whatever you need to do, but bring him home. And so David tells Joab, all right, you're going to get what you wanted. Bring Absalom home, but I don't want to see his face. Two years would go by and David wouldn't have any encounter with his son Well, what's happening in that three years that he's gone? What's happening in the two years while he's waiting to kill his brother Amnon? What's happening in the two years that he's home and wants to see his father? A root of bitterness is is springing up within his heart. He's holding on to this anger and it's, it's causing this defilement within his life. If you remember the last verse in chapter 14, Verse 33, it says, Then Joab went to the king and told him, and when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on on his face to the ground before the king. Then the king kissed Absalom. And so they finally get together, they finally reunite, they finally come back, but what has happened in those many years of being distant? Bitterness. And so Absalom is going to usurp the throne He is going to now rally the nation of Israel together and he's going to do it in a very conniving, subtle way 
And so that's why I say be careful who you align yourself to because even though there are people who have positions of authority in our life and people who have, if you will, um, titles or whatever, uh, we need to be very careful with our allegiance. And we definitely submit under the authorities that God has placed until we recognize that they are not following after God. It's to God that we give our allegiance to. We respect the positions, but we watch who we're aligning ourselves with, especially as it relates to our heart. So, let's take a look at this. Verses 1 through 6, 2 Samuel chapter 15. After this it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. So it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision that Absalom would call to him and say, What city are you from? And he would say, Your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your case is good and right, but there is no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me, then I would give him justice. And so it was, whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel." And so Absalom is pretty much done and he's taking matters into his own hands and he's basically going to usurp the king, take the throne, get David running and fleeing. And how does he go about it? How does Absalom steal the hearts of the men of Israel? Absalom's cunning campaign worked. He became more popular and more trusted than David. Absalom knew exactly how to do this. Notice in verse 1, chariots and horses uh, and 50 men to run before him. He carefully cultivated an exciting and enticing image. He comes across to me as a a smooth, slick politician. You know, grabbing babies and, and hugging them and shaking hands and patting backs and just a smooth, slick oil politician where the people have needs, and he's looking to meet those needs, but it's insincere. It's not genuine. He's not doing it because he cares for the people. He's not doing it because it's the right thing to do. He's trying to win favor so that he can take power from his father and win the hearts of the people. In verse 2, Absalom would rise early. It says he worked hard. He did what he needed to do. Beside the way to the gate, it says in verse 2, he knew exactly where to position himself. Verse 2 goes on, anyone who had a lawsuit, he looked for troubled people. And those were the people that he would talk to and win them over. And and verse 2, it goes on, Absalom would call to him. He reached out to these troubled people. What city are you from, he would ask them. He took personal interest in the troubled person. In verse 3, it says, your case is good and right. He sympathized with the person. No deputy of the king to hear you, he would tell them. He never attacked David directly. He did it in a roundabout way. Verse 3, he goes on, no deputy of the king to hear you. He left troubled persons more troubled. And so, kind of like our politicians today, uh, they raise up a straw man. What do they do? They, they give you this problem 
that nobody can fix. Oh my gosh, you've got this horrible situation. And then they have the solution right over here. All along they've had the solution, but they almost create a problem so that they can be the winners to your problems and your solutions. That's not how government was supposed to work. In verse verse 4, it says, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, and everyone who has any suit or cause uh, could come to me, then I would give him justice. Without directly attacking David, Absalom promised to do better. And so again, just through a subtle approach, he won the hearts of the people over. Verse 7 goes on to say, Now it came to pass after 40 years that Absalom said to the king, Please let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I made to the Lord, for your servant took a vow while I dwelt at at Geshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. I don't know if that's right or wrong. I don't know if he really did this, but what he's doing here is, He's communicating to David, hey, let me go to Hebron because I made a commitment to the Lord and I want to sacrifice there. I want to keep my promise to the Lord. Okay, maybe he did do that, but is this the reason why he wants to go to Hebron? He wants to go to Hebron and he's going to take a group of men with him because he wants to win the nation of Israel, each one of the tribes over to himself. And so right information, wrong implication, straight out lie. It's interesting that when David is going through all of that stuff, he writes Psalm 51. And in the midst of that psalm, there's this little verse that says, God desires truth from the innermost part of our being. That we would be careful to speak the truth at all times. You can fool some of the people some of the time. You can fool all of the people all of the time. But you'll never fool the Lord. He sees through to the motives of our hearts. And it's to him that we need to be truthful. And we live out that allegiance and obedience to God as we live out life in front of people. Absalom is jiving and conniving here. He's, he's being very disingenuous. Right here where it says 40 years, that could be a copious error. It could be 40 years from when David took the, the reins, or it really could be four years. Um, again, I have a note here. It says, after 40 years, this perhaps was Absalom's age at the time, but some believe that this is a minor corruption of the text and that it should read four years based on the readings in Syriac and Arabic translations, Josephus and some Hebrew manuscripts. And so these are called emendations. Big word just means, um, what does emendation mean? It means... um, good guesses of what should be in the text. And so they, they, if you've never studied how we got our Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and our Greek translation of the, of the New Testament, it's an incredible, credible just study to see. There are, I don't know, over a hundred emendations, little changes within. Remember, we never had the original manuscripts to make copies of the Bible. And so we would have a copy of the originals. The scribes would then take those and they would copy letter by letter. When they came to the the name of God, they would write one letter in the name of God. They would go away, ceremonial, clean themselves, ceremonially clean themselves. They'd come back, write the next letter for the name of God. Anytime 
the word God was in the Bible, they would do that. And so, I mean, they would go through incredible things. They would count all of the numbers in each row, count all the numbers in each sentence, count all the numbers in each chapter. They didn't even have chapters. Count all the numbers for the book. They would find the middle letter, make sure that it matched. So there was just all kinds of awesome ways that they would do that. But we would have copies of copies that would be copies of copies. And so we have a reliable text when we have the Bible. But because of these copy errors... We have little tiny things like this, whether it's 40 or 4. And then we have other things like, you know, we put the I before the E, or does the E go before the I? So little things like that, or names that would be misspelled. Those are the things that we have as far as those errors in the copies of the scriptures that we have. Never the context or the meaning is toyed with or messed up. And so again, just an interesting fact here of, probably four years. We go on in verse 8. For your servant took a vow while I dwelt at Geshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men invited from Jerusalem, and they went along innocently and did not know anything. Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gileonite, David's counselor, from his city, from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy grew strong, for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. And so Absalom has this little scheme, this little plan. He's jiving and conniving. He's got the king's permission to be able to go to Hebron. The king sends with him 200 men. These men don't know what Absalom's doing, but it looks like, whoa, Absalom's taking over, and he has all these men vouching for his credibility. They don't even really know what he's doing. And so just interesting. And I find it interesting that you have Ahithophel, David's counselor, who would go with him. And I know that in the back of Absalom's mind, he knows Ahithophel. I'll bet you I can get him to turn on David. Who is Ahithophel? Bathsheba's grandfather. And so using that little, mm, I'll bet you there's something stern in his heart that I can manipulate, Absalom knows exactly what he's doing here. Verse 13, Now the messenger came to David, saying the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. What do you do with those who cause division? I ask the question. You have, Ahithoph- um, you have Absalom who is dividing the kingdom, the nation of Israel. And again, that allegiance to somebody in power, but whoa, 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 what's going on? Are they honoring God? Are they with God? Are they looking to God in the midst of what they're doing? Absalom, in no sense of the word, is. In Romans chapter 16, let me read you verses 17 through 20. The Bible says, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which you learn, and avoid them. For those who are of such do not serve the Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattery speech, device, deceive the hearts of the simple. 
for your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, I'm sorry, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And so God is encouraging us, yes, there are people who are in authority. Yes, there are people that we are called to submit unto because God has set up the authorities. But when we see that there are people that are against God by creating divisions and confusion and offenses, he's saying, mark that person. Don't put yourself under that level of authority and be careful to honor God in the midst of your life, not these people who are leading others astray from the path of God. Going on in verse 14. So David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And so notice David's heart. His heart is for the the nation of Israel. He doesn't want Jerusalem to be destroyed. He recognizes that Absalom is coming from Hebron. He wants to make Israel's headquarter in Hebron, but he's coming back to Jerusalem. David's like, you know what? I'll just leave. It's not that serious. I don't want to see the nation or God's name damaged. David's heart is coming back to God, and you're starting to see David is doing the right things for the right reasons, and it's not about him anymore. It's not about what he has to have. He's honestly just coming to a place where he says, it's about God. It's about Israel, the nation. Verse 15, and the king's servants said to the king, we are your servants, ready to do whatever my lord the king commands. Then the king went out with all his household after him, but the king left ten women, concubines, to keep the house. And David feels he's coming back. He feels that God's going to bring him back and he's going to be able to leave the ten concubines to be able to watch over the house. Uh, Good and bad, good that he recognizes, you know what, God's going to deliver me and if he doesn't, then I'm just going to bounce. But at the same time, what is he doing collecting concubines? What is he doing multiplying wives? It would be his son who would have 300 concubines. I said in first service, one wife is enough and one of the ladies yelled out, yeah, one husband's enough too. Amen, all right. I ain't mad at you. One spouse is enough to deal with. Verse 17, And the king went out with all the people after him and stopped at the outskirts. Then all his servants passed before him and all the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the Gittites, 600 men who had followed him from Gath, passed before the king. I love this because these who came out of Gath were those who were troubled. They were distressed, depressed. They were down and out. And David would be running from King Saul at the time. But he found all of this this motley crew, this ragtag team. And they saw that through his leadership, God was leading him and that God was with him. And here they are when David's in trouble. Those men are there with him. And they're like, David, we don't understand what's going on, but we're with you. You were there for us. We want to be there for you. Verse 19. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why are you going with us? Return and remain with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your own place. In fact, you came only yesterday. Should I make you wander up and down with us today, 
since you since I go, I know not where. Return and take uh, your brethren back. Mercy and truth be with you. And so David sees this guy from uh, Gittite and, is that where he's from? Yeah, yeah, the, the Ittai, the Gittite. And he tells him, you know what, you've only been with us a day. You've just committed your life to the Lord. Just, just go back. Go back with Absalom and he's going to be king and just go with him. I love the response in verse 21. But Ittai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives, and as my Lord the king lives, surely in whatever place my Lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also your servant will be. And so just a true follower of God recognizes who's the anointing on, and that's where my allegiance is going to be. That's the one I'm going to follow. Not this pseudo leader that's going to be there for a little season, but the one whose God's hand is upon. Pastor Chuck Smith writes in reference to this verse, Ittai was a general uh, for the Philistine army who had allied himself with David. Now David was fleeing to avoid a bloody conflict with Absalom, and he told Ittai to just go home. This wasn't Ittai's battle, and there was no need for him to risk his life and the lives of his men. But Ittai had come to faith in Yahweh, and he believed God was with David. He was committed to be with David in life or death. And then Pastor Chuck asked this question. How would it feel to have someone offer that kind of commitment to you, especially when you are down and out? And then he asked this question. And what would our lives be like if we were to have that kind of commitment to the Lord. So in thick and thin, no matter what's going on, no matter what's happening, no matter how difficult it might get, I've lined myself up with the King of Kings, with the Lord of Lords, and I don't like what's going on right now. I might not understand what's going on right now, but my allegiance is to God Almighty. What an example that he shows for us. Verse 22, so David said to Ittai, go and cross over. Then Ittai the Gittite and all his men and all the little ones who were with him crossed over. And all the country wept with a loud voice and all the people crossed over. The king himself also crossed over the brook Kidron and all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. There was Zadok also and all the Levites with him bearing the ark of the covenant of God and they sat down uh, they set down the ark of god and abiathar went up until all the people had finished crossing over from the city then the king said to zadok carry the ark of god back into the city if i find favor in the eyes of the lord he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place but if he says thus i have no delight in you here i am let him do to me as seems good to him Wow. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 4, 5, and throughout those first chapters, you have the ark of God being treated like a good luck charm. Hey, wherever the ark is, there's blessings flowing, so let's go get it. And they carry it the wrong way, and what happens? People die. And then they go back to the book and read the Bible and see how they're supposed to carry it with poles and stuff. Look at David's maturing faith. Hey, let's bring the ark with us. We're fleeing uh, Jerusalem. We're fleeing the place where we're at. Let's take the ark. David says, send it back to Jerusalem. 
Let it go with the priest. That's where it belongs. If God is with us, he's going to get us through this. And guess what? If God is judging me for sins that are in my life, then so be it. That's an incredible maturing faith that David has right there. It's no longer a luck charm to him. Verse 27. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Return to the city in peace, and your two sons with you, Ahimeaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait in the plains of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Therefore, Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up, and he made his head covered and went barefoot. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they went up. Then someone told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Now it happened when David had come to the top of the mountain where he worshipped God, there was Hushai, the archite, coming to meet him with his robe torn and dust on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, then you will become a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I was your father's servant previously, so I will now also be your servant then you may defeat the counsel of Ahithophel for me. And do you not have Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, with you there? Therefore it will be that whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall tell Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Indeed, they have there with them their two sons, Ahimeaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you will send me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, went into the city and Absalom came into Jerusalem. And so David finds himself fleeing. The priests come to him. David tells them, aren't you a seer? Why don't you guys go back to Jerusalem? And you know what? Why don't you do this? You guys can get intel from Absalom. Find out what's going on. And then you can send it back to the, through these two sons. And they can bring me word of what's going on. But you guys go back to your place and just send messages to me of what's going on. And so just an interesting thing. This is a time of great mourning. The whole nation is in mourning. The whole nation is hurting. The whole nation is struggling. And it says, interesting little, little, little verse right there. As David goes up and he lands at the top of the mountain, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the hurting, he stops and he worships the Lord there. John Corson writes, in times of weeping, worship. Fight against the tendency to hold up, to pull back, to feel sorry for yourself. It is especially when you feel depressed, discouraged, unloved, or upset that you need to extol the Lord. I remember I was walking through Downey, and I was heading over to teach a study. And I was going through probably one of the most difficult trials in all of my life. And I remember that going through that trial, a lot of people would come up to me and they would ask, hey, how are you doing? How are things going? What's going on? How are you, how are you handling this? And I liked the attention. 
I liked that people would come up to me and, and feel for me and sympathize and empathize with me. And so during that season, I remember as I was walking through the grounds of church, I remember just having this conversation with God. And I remember telling him, you know what, God? I don't want to be known by a trial. I don't want to be known by the sufferings that I go through. Because guess what? You're bigger than all that, and you're better. And so when people ask me how I'm doing, Lord, I'm going to tell them the truth. I'm fine, because God's on the throne. And as difficult as this time is, and as tough as this season has been, God's greater than any season. God's bigger than any problems or trials that we can go through. Let's close with Isaiah chapter 61, and we will see the very heart that God wants us to have in the midst of the pain that we go through, in the midst of the difficulty that we go through. This is what God can do to a heart. Isaiah chapter 61 Verses 1 through 3, the Bible says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison doors to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planning of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And so we are greater than any single season of our life, even if that season like David and the whole nation of Israel, is being displaced out of your home and fleeing from one who wants to usurp the authority of the king. As difficult as that is, as trying as that may be, we have victory in the Lord. We fight from victory. We have the joy of God that nobody can take from us and no circumstance can take from us. We have the peace of God that surpasses understanding And so we need to look to God for those things. And I'm not saying that we cannot have seasons of difficulty and have people be able to minister to us and hear us out. The grieving process is real. And these people are grieving. But notice what David did in the beginning of his season of loss. He got to the top of the mountain and he worshiped God. And I think that's an example for all of us. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. And never, ever, Lord, do we want to minimize the pain that we can go through. But, Father, we certainly can make choices in what to do with that pain as we worship you in spite of the difficulties that we're going through. As well, Lord, as we learn from this chapter, I pray that we would be careful with our allegiance that we would recognize, Lord, that it's to you we obey, first and foremost. And I pray that you would give us insight into the hearts of individuals that we find ourselves uh, with. 
And Lord, when we see people who are divisive, people who are offensive, Lord, may we be very careful, very careful who we give our allegiance to. So give us wisdom, Lord, as we look to you and continue to be with us, Father, as we navigate through life. In Jesus' name, amen.